Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. My name's Albert, and I'm an alcoholic. By the grace of God and the fellowship of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and people like you and conferences like this and my pretty Al-Anon wife, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink since September the 7th of 1973, and for that I'm eternally grateful. We're taught to give our sobriety date in Texas on the premise that if you don't give one, you may not have one. So I don't want anybody going back to Texas and say, that kid didn't give you sobriety date. I want to thank Clem and uh, the committee, uh, whoever is responsible for the invitation. It is uh, it's such a privilege and such an honor. And it's a very special occasion for me because uh, my little 83-year-old mom lives in Santa Cruz. And she's never been to an AA meeting or an AA conference or an AA convention of any kind. And this is her very first time and my very first time to speak in front of her. And I would like for you to welcome Dorothy. Dorothy, stand up here. That, uh, that lady's been in my life almost 62 years now. And I want to tell you, it's been a rather humbling weekend because uh, in the business world, I'm kind of invited to board meetings now and then, and on occasion people ask me for uh, decisions to make. And yesterday when we got to Santa Cruz, Mom had lunch ready, and I sat down and she said, Now, Junior, don't eat too fast. You know? And she said, Shug, you put on a little weight. And so it's been rather humbling this weekend to have Mom in the midst. There's also another lady here that uh, come this June the 19th, we will have been married 41 years. And I'd like for you to meet my Al-Anon wife, Sally. just dawned on me. There's about a hundred years of women in my life that just stood up there. <laughs> this is uh, such a treat and such a privilege, and uh, it was so great to hear Angela last night and get to meet her. And Eve, uh, your speaker for tomorrow morning, is such a gracious lady. We've had the privilege to, to be with her before, and, and you're in for such a great treat. It's... Uh, as far as I can tell, I've always had kind of a feeling of inadequacy, a feeling that I didn't quite fit, that I wasn't a part of. I listened to Angela last night talk about that, and most alcoholics do. The feeling that I wasn't as good as, or that I was better than, or that I looked up to, or I looked down at, but I could never seem to be just a part of. And as I look back, I think probably that I was addicted to approval 
a long time before I ever was addicted to alcohol. And I think people talk to me about my attitude and people talk to me about my behavior a long time before they ever talk to me about my drinking. I remember my dad saying to me, damn, you're a hard-headed kid. Damn, you're a stubborn kid. And I remember coaches and teachers saying, you know, boy, you are a stubborn kid. And people talk to me about my behavior and people talk to me about my attitude before they ever talk to me about my drinking. And I think when you're addicted to approval, at least as I remember it, you become very easy to manipulate. And I think you do things that you don't want to do with people that you don't really want to be with down deep in your heart. And you go places that you don't want to go just to be a part of. And over the years, as I added alcohol to that, I became a second-class citizen doing second-class things in second-class places with second-class people. And the thing that I love the most about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is that it permits me to be a first-class person doing first-class things in first-class places with first-class people. And I love you for that. I remember that my drinking, really, I just, from the very beginning, drank as much as I could, as often as I could, when I could. And uh, sometimes the results were good, and sometimes the results were bad. And sometimes I had a good time, and sometimes I had a bad time. But it just seemed that that went along with the drinking. I remember uh, in the service, I drank in high school and college, and in the service, and in the service one time, I was stationed at a place not too far from here called Camp Shoemaker, and uh, I had drawn a weekend liberty, and two other fellas and myself were just going to hitchhike over to Hayward and uh, start a little party on Friday and Saturday and then go back to the base on Sunday. And I remember uh, the party starting on Friday and having a good time Saturday, and they got back to the base on Sunday, and somehow I didn't get back until Tuesday. And the military frowns on that. Don't like that at all. And I remember that the shore patrolmen came to the barracks and they put me in this little jeep and they took me to the provost marshal and I had been served a captain's mast. And one more time I was standing in front of this officer and he wasn't talking about my drinking, he was talking about my behavior. And I just kept all the time thinking up here, people keep talking to me about my behavior. You know, it's such a deceptive disease that by the time it deceives you and by the time you deny it, you can look right at it and say, that's not my problem. I used to think money was my problem. If I had enough money, I wouldn't have the problems that I have. I mean, I don't know about you. My creditors never called and said, you're drinking too much. And my creditors called and said, would you please make some payments? And, you know, it was, it, it just seemed to me that people talked to me about my behavior. I got out of the service, and I got back to the, uh, the University of Iowa in the fall of 1946. And Iowa City is my home. Actually, both Sally and I and my mother were, were Iowa farm kids. And I remember one, uh, one fall night, I walked into an Iowa tavern, and I saw the girl that just stood up a few minutes ago. 
And she was absolutely the prettiest, loveliest, most beautiful, striking woman that I had ever seen. And in true alcoholic fashion, I looked at her and said, that should be mine. You know how alcoholics are. We don't court anything. We just capture it. And somehow I had the feeling if I could put glass over her, if I could capture the queen, that would make me a king. And I just had one problem at the time. I was engaged to another girl. And that's no big deal for alcoholics. I mean, when we decide to go from there to there, we just go. We don't really tell anybody. And I remember I got her telephone number, and with the, the persistence of an alcoholic, just chased her for about three weeks around the clock. And I remember one day I, I got drunk and I cashed in all of my war bonds, and I drove up to a little town called Cedar Rapids, and I bought a, drink, a, a ring. And I, I remember the jeweler saying to me, what size engagement ring do you want? And, and in true alcoholic fashion, I said, big enough to go over any finger. I mean, we don't, we're not that specific. And, and I remember I bought the ring, and I called Sally at the dorm, and I said, could you meet me outside? And I remember being so drunk, I could hardly get the car parked. Sally came out, got in the front seat of the car. I put the ring on the wrong finger and said, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could have me for the rest of your life? And you know, a peculiar thing happened. We were two young, frightened kids. We got married, and that addiction to approval that I had as an individual, we took on as a couple. I mean, we wanted so desperately to be accepted by you. And I remember on weekends, Sally and I didn't have much money, and we'd drive around the neighborhoods, you know, and at the houses and neighborhoods that we couldn't afford. And one time we saw this house, and it had a red door and a brass kick plate, and we went home and painted our door red and put on a brass kick plate. And about a month or so later, we drove around another hood and, neighborhood, and we, we saw these black shutters, and we thought that would look great on our house. And we went home, and we bought some shutters and painted them black and put them on our house. And a few weeks later, we went around and we looked at your shrubbery, and then we bought shrubbery that looked like your shrubbery. And the trap that we were falling into was we thought if we looked good on the outside, you would think we were okay on the inside. And we had children. I, you know, I've always said that God's most precious gift is turned over to rank amateurs. We didn't know anything about kids. We didn't have a manual on children. We just thought you were supposed to have them. It was to be a part of. And we have four. We have a daughter and we have three sons. And I have always been in sales and in marketing and, and worked primarily for large corporations. And I, I was working for a large corporation called Owens Corning Fiberglass. And I had received a nice promotion to go to New York. And whenever we had a chance to move or I was transferred, I don't recall that Sally and I ever sat down in the quietness of our house and said, is this going to be a good move for the family? Are any of the children going to get hurt? Is anybody going to have to move up a grade or back a grade? You know, the way the conversation went in our alcoholic home was a lot like this. God, we've got a chance to start over again. And this time they're not going to know. And this time we're going to keep track of all the checks in the checkbook. That was always a big one with Sally. 
And you know, we Sally and I, peculiar thing about the illness of alcoholism, Sally and I kept looking for that tangible thing that was going to make it different this time. We never saw the disease of alcoholism. You're dealing with a disease powerful enough to kill people that don't have it. And we kept looking for the thing that was going to make it different this time. If we had another bedroom, if we had a big enough yard, if we could be next to the school or close to the church, it would be different this time. And I remember that Sally and I put the four kids in the car and we headed off for New York. And I got to New York and I went to my offices at 56th and 5th in the glass building and Sally took the children up into Connecticut to find us a nice family home. And we found a lovely home up in Connecticut, a home that was built in 1812 by a sea captain, just a real romantic place. And if you had stopped me on the streets of New York at that time and said, Albert, how are things in your life? I would have looked you straight in the eye and said, terrific. I have this marvelous job and this beautiful wife and these four lovely children and this home up in Connecticut. And up here, I really thought that's what was going on in my life. And yet on the inside, I knew we were bleeding to death and I didn't know what the problem was. I think every alcoholic in this room knows what it is to die while they're living. Dying while you're living is a horrible feeling. Angela talked about it last night. You know, the man in the penthouse and the man in the flop house both have skid row of the soul. And that's the thing that I think we have is skid row of the soul, and it happens to all of us. I used to commute into New York and on the New Haven, and sometimes I'd come home sober and sometimes I'd come home drunk. Sometimes I wouldn't come home at all. I remember one Friday evening I came home and I was pretty drunk and as I came through the back door Sally made some comment about my condition. And whenever Sally began to, to talk about my condition and I knew she was right, I would go into what I called my alcoholic defense mechanism. God, I loved one-line sarcasm. I could just almost knock you over with it, but it didn't show. Didn't leave any black and blue marks, didn't draw any blood, and I could deny it. And this night, Sally made some comment, and I remember I just let her have it, and she just, I could almost see her flinch. And she always reacted the same way. She would say to me, do you mean that? And I would say, do I mean what? And she would say, what you just said. What did I just say? Well, you know what you said. No, I don't. Tell me what you think you thought you heard. And then she would tell me what she thought she heard, and then I'd really go into my routine, and I'd say, Oh, God, you took it all wrong. I did not say it like that. I did not use that tone of voice. And if I could get her to talk long enough, invariably she would say to me, Albert, I'm really sorry for misunderstanding. And I would say, by God, you should, as hard as I work. You know. you know, I'm fascinated by the alcoholic. Sobriety has not altered my thinking all that much. I'm still tenacious. I'm still compulsive. I'm not moderate about anything. I can use up a year's supply of anything in a week if you just leave me alone. <laughs> Sally still hates to send me to the grocery store for a quart of milk because I'm dangerous. Not too long ago, she sent me for a quart of milk, and I came back, and she said, how much was the milk? And I said, 
As an alcoholic, I can't get those empty carts up and down the aisles without putting things in there. And you don't understand, but light bulbs and pant hangers and super glue are very important to me. And God forbid you should come to my house and ask for super glue, and I don't have any. I came home one Friday night, and I had been traveling in Texas, and I had been gone for about two weeks. And as I came through the back door that evening, there was a different look about Sally, and there was a different tone in her voice. And I remember she said to me, I can't live like this anymore, and I'd rather be dead than live the way we're living. And I remember looking at her and saying, hey, it's been a tough two weeks. Let's get some sleep tonight, and in the morning it'll look different. And on a Saturday morning in Westport, Connecticut, the only lady that I've ever really loved said to me, I would rather be dead than live the way we're living. I'd rather be dead than live with you anymore. And she took a razor blade off the top of the dresser, and she went to the bathroom, and she started to say she was going to kill herself and slice her wrists. And I remember the loudness and the intensity of my voice began to take over, and I said, my God, Sally, don't do that. Don't kill yourself. My drinking bothers you that much, I won't drink anymore. And Sally and I are screaming about her killing herself and my drinking, and the four children that I mentioned were standing right behind me while all this yelling was going on. And I've been privileged to sponsor some Alateens groups. And the young people, the Alateens, can tell you some things about the illness of alcoholism that most of us don't recognize. I was working with a young fellow that was getting beaten up on a regular basis. As a matter of fact, he called me one night to tell me that he was going to commit suicide. And I said, hey, don't do that. Just, you know, hang on until tomorrow, and, and I'll pick you up at noon, and we'll go have a hamburger. And if you still feel like it tomorrow night, well, you know, we'll work it out again. And I remember Jack got in my car, and we started to drive off, and I said, how are things going? And he said, they sound pretty good. And I almost let that phrase sail over my head, and I finally said to Jack, I said, what do you mean they sound pretty good? And he said, Mr. Myers, the illness of alcoholism has a sound to it. I said, you're kidding. He said, no, that's how I defend myself. He said, Mr. Myers, I can put one foot in the house and determine the condition of the home immediately by the sound. There's either too much noise or there's no noise at all or there's yelling, sarcasm, profanity, flesh hitting flesh, furniture hitting furniture. He said, depending upon what I hear, that's how I react. And he said, if I hear the wrong sound, he said, I go to my room and I turn the lights down and the stereo up. Or he said, I try to call a friend that I think will understand. Or if the pain is just too much, I go back out on the street because there's less pain on the street than there is in the home. And then he made a profound statement and one that has meant an awful lot to Sally and I in sobriety. He said, Mr. Myers, if the sound of your house is the same today as it was a year ago, chances are you're not growing. Do you know how many Alateens come up to me and say, you know, my dad was profane when he was drinking. He's two years into sobriety, and he's still profane. When's he going to grow? If you were late and inconsiderate when you were drinking, and you're still late and inconsiderate in your sobriety, maybe there's some more house cleaning to do. I don't know. I remember that in sobriety, Sally and I began to look at the sounds in our house, and we took the harshness out, and we took the profanity out, and we took the phrases out that caused us pain in sobriety. 
I'll tell you one that was very innocent in sobriety. I'd come home on a Friday night after I'd been working, and I would say to Sally, how would you like to go out for dinner? And she'd say, terrific. And we would get in the car, and we'd start down Central Expressway, and I would say to her, where would you like to go for dinner? And she would say, I don't care. I'd say, let's go over to the split rail and get some barbecue. She says, I don't feel like barbecue. I said, let's go to Vincent's and get some fish. She said, I don't feel like fish. Now, we alcoholics are sensitive. And we don't handle rejection well. And it would just be a matter of seconds until the fight would start. And it would, damn it, then let's just go home. And we've taken all of that out. You know, a couple years ago, the grandson called Corey, and he said, Grandpa, I love to come to your house better than all the houses that I go to. And I said, why is that, Corey? Thinking that I spoil him as a good grandfather should. And he said, because it's quiet. And, you know, I never thought about our house being quiet. That's what we have today is a, is a loving, compassionate, quiet home. I got my arms around Sally that morning, and uh, we took her to a psychiatrist. We always took her to a psychiatrist. We took her to five psychiatrists. Somehow we had it figured out that if we could get her fixed, I wouldn't drink. I don't know how we do that. And the psychiatrist said, you're Iowa farm kids, and you're out of your element. If you go back to Iowa, it'll be okay. And I remember that we wrote this down, that just like making out the blueprints of a house, and we wrote all this down. And the peculiar thing about it was we did not put down the illness or the disease of alcoholism. Now, I want to tell you something. Sally and I knew about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Her father came into AA in 1952 and had 25 years of continuous sobriety before he passed away some 12 years ago. So we knew about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. As a matter of fact, when I finally made it in 1973, I said to Dad, I said, Dad, my God, why didn't you talk to me about my drinking? I took everything that you loved in this world. I took your daughter and your love and your money and your booze, and you never once talked to me about my drinking. And Harold was a marvelous man with just little piercing blue eyes, and he looked at me and he said, you would have resented it so much coming from me that it would have ruined the opportunity for the right person to reach you. And he said, God made us all different, so we need each other. If we made us all the same, one of us wouldn't be necessary. And more than that, he has gifted each one of us with the ability to touch one other human being that nobody else can touch. And I would be willing to bet that everybody is sitting here tonight because one other human being had the ability to reach in and touch you deeper than all the rest and let you know it was okay. We went back to Iowa and... Uh, I became kind of a periodic drunk. It isn't that I didn't drink every day. I did, but you know, I didn't get drunk every day. I'd go two months, three months sometimes, and then one morning I would get up and shave and shower and put on my suit and tie, and I'd go to work, and we'd go to a business luncheon and have a couple of drinks, and somebody would say, let's go to Chicago. i say, sounds good to me. You know, and I, and I never knew how that happened. Three or four days later, people would say, why did you do that? And I would say, God, I don't know, seemed like a good idea at the time. I never had an answer for that. But if you do that often enough, strange people gather in your living room. And I did that for four days one time, and sure enough, they gathered in the living room. You know, doctors and attorneys and neighbors, and 
And all of a sudden, they began to point their finger, not at her, but at me. And they said, you, you need to go to the alcohol and psychiatric clinic at the University of Iowa. And one thing about alcoholics, when we finally get cornered and the evidence is so tangible that you can't wiggle anymore, you begin to say funny things like, okay. Yeah. On a Monday morning at the Alcohol and Psychiatric Clinic at the University of Iowa, this gentleman is talking to me about my drinking. And he said, when you drink anymore, you hurt people. And I said, that's true. And he said, when you drink anymore, you get in all kinds of trouble. I said, that too. He said, let me tell you something about alcohol. He said, there are people that are allergic to strawberries. When they eat them, they break out in a rash. Your problem is when you get an ounce of alcohol in you, you have hives of the brain. And I remember saying to John, my God, John, I'm allergic to alcohol. And he said, that's right. And he said, I suggest that you talk to a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and you go to an AA meeting. And I think it was in September of 1967, Sally and I went to our first AA meeting at a little club over off of Melrose Avenue. And a man stood up and said, my name is and I'm an alcoholic. And I turned to her and said, get me out of here. I am not like them. I am not like them. And the next seven years are really kind of tough to talk about. Because they gathered in the living room again. And they kind of said, we should sell the house and we're going to keep the equity. And you should sell your furniture and we're going to keep the equity. And as I look down and see Sally and I see my mom and uh, I kind of picture Sally and the four kids and I standing on the lawn and the house is gone and the furniture is being auctioned off, we never saw the disease of alcoholism. And the kids would get to be 18, and they'd go off to college, and I'd think, isn't it terrific? Hell, they're going off to school. I want to tell you something. Once they got out of the alcoholic home, they never came back. The daughter wrote me a letter one time, and there was a phrase in there that said, You'll always be my father, but my love for you will never be the same. And I remember looking at it and reading it over and over again and thinking, What have I done to destroy the relationship with my daughter? And the oldest son hit the campus in the late 60s, and it was a very rebellious time. And, and he was married and divorced with child before he was 20, and another child through a relationship with no marriage, and in and out of drugs, and sold and jailed and trafficked. And I remember that Sally and I would just sit in the quietness of our house and say, what in the world is going on with our family? And we didn't see it. And the middle son was kind of the quiet one. It just One morning I came to breakfast and Tom was gone. And it was just down to Sally and myself and the youngest son. And he couldn't get out because he was just too young. And I used a friend. And I got a job in Shreveport, Louisiana. And if Sally could come up here and talk to you, she would tell you that it was a year that neither one of us liked to talk too much about. Because I drank around the clock. And one night I was at a place called Shreve Square, and I looked in the rearview mirror, and I saw those red lights going around, and I thought, whoops, they'd like for me to stop. <laughs> and I'd heard about Louisiana Caddo Parish police deputies, and they're mean. So in true alcoholic fashion, I thought, well, I'll be ready for them. I'll pull the car over and get my driver's license out. And I remember having a tough time getting the car parked again, and they came around to the side of the car, and I rolled the window down, and they said, could we have your driver's license? And I said, sure, and I just handed it to them out the window. And then I made a terrible mistake. I rolled up the window and drove off and left them standing there. 
God, that makes him mean. Oh, God. And the second time they got the car stopped, there wasn't any dialogue. The door just flew open, and they threw, pulled me out of the car, and they threw me over the hood. And I, I remember, if I close my eyes, I can remember the handcuffs going up the back, and my alcoholic mind is saying, God, I hope nobody's watching this. You know, cars are going by. And they get me down to the jail cell on uh, Texas Avenue there in Shreveport, Louisiana, and do the things that they do for DWIs. And finally, somebody said, we got to put you in a cell. I said, wonderful, you know. They kind of shoved me in there head first, and as I turned around, the bars were coming together. And that sound that God made for drunks in jail when those... And for one second, and I don't know why, I saw myself on top of the glass building in New York in my office overlooking Central Park to the jail cell in Shreveport, Louisiana. And I thought, damn, I got a problem. And then the guy said, you can make a call. And that scared me because I didn't have anybody to call. People that had loved me for a long time said, just don't call. So being a good salesman, I called my best customer. That's what alcoholics do. And God works in strange ways because Frank wasn't in the program. And he came down and got me out of jail. And I remember we got in the front seat of Frank's car and I said, let's go get a six-pack and straighten this out. And he said, no, why don't you spend the night at my house and in the morning we'll try to figure out what to do with you. And I heard what he said, what do you mean try to figure out what to do with me? God, I don't want to be the way I am. I mean, I'm, I'm motivated by my good intentions. You just judge me on my actions. Can't you see? And I remember he had one of those big bottles of Pepsi in his refrigerator, and I began to pull on that all night long. And I was watching a big kitchen clock, and it, it got to be exactly 6 o'clock in the morning. And I called this Episcopal priest at Holy Cross Church, and I said, Father Paul, this is Albert, and I'm in big trouble. And he said, can you get down to the church? And I said, yes. And we began to talk. And he said, Albert, I want you to go to this halfway house. It's called the Bridge House on Stoner Avenue. And there's a 74-year-old retired electrical contractor over there that I think you can relate to. And up here I'm saying, how in the hell could I relate to a 74-year-old retired electrical contractor in a halfway house? I'm kind of a high-class guy. But when you're cornered and the evidence is tangible, you begin to say funny things like, okay. And at 10.30 that morning, I walked down to that halfway house, and I walked in, and they sat me down at the end of a table just like this. And there were three old guys there that morning, Bill Safel, Bill Steedley, and Bill Smith. They're all dead now. Confused the devil out of me because they told me that the founder of this thing was Bill Wilson. <laughs> and one of them said to me, when did you have your last drink? And I remember that it just, you, you know, you know when it's over. And I, and I begin to pound on the table and I said, God, I got these $1,200 worth of hot checks. And I got this DWI and the house is gone and the furniture is gone and three of the four kids are gone and... I'm about to get fired, and they want to pick up the car, and Sally wants to leave, and one of those old turkeys turned to the other one and said, Boy, he sure sounds like one of us. 
And one of them said to me, would you do anything to get sober? I said, God, I'll do anything. And one guy said, would you go to seven meetings in a row? Seven meetings in a row. God, I swung around and there they were, those slogans, live and let live and easy does. I mean, I had seen those in Sally's dad's house. I said, these guys are talking about Alcoholics Anonymous. And I kind of straightened up in the chair and this marvelous old Louisiana man put his arm around me and said, hey, Albert, we need to go for a ride. He said, I want to take you over to Shumpert Hospital. He said, I got a friend in the alcoholic ward over there and I want you to meet Sister Germaine. And I thought, damn, I know what he's doing. He's just going to check me in. And we got in the front seat of his car, and on the way over to the hospital, he set the hook. And he said to me, he said, you know, Albert, I never did quit drinking. And that's all he said. And I started thinking about that. And that priest was right. I could relate to this guy. I mean, I don't know how he's doing that, but I love that cure. And we got over to the hospital, and we talked to his friend, and I met Sister Germaine, and and sure enough, he didn't check me in, and we started back towards the halfway house, and he set the hook one more time. And he said, you know, Albert, I never did quit drinking. As a matter of fact, I may have a drink tomorrow. And I said, Bill, how long have you been doing that? He said, what's that, Albert? I said, that not quit drinking. He said, 27 years, but I may have a drink tomorrow. He said, Albert, you need to know, nobody ever took my right to drink away from me. You know, I don't know what I thought you were going to take away from me. We alcoholics have a hold of this rock, and we're going to the bottom of the lake, and everybody is around us is saying, let go of the rock. And we're saying, hell no, it's mine, you know. God. I said, but Bill, if this dumb thing works, you'll take away my freedom. And God, this pathetic glaze came over his face, and he said, your freedom? He said, let's talk a little bit about freedom. He said, now, I have this dog that I put in this fenced-in backyard every day. And he said, it soaks up the sun, and it barks at the birds, and it's got plenty to eat. And I come home at night and pick it up and love it and take it in the house. Now, he said, I could let that dog be perfectly free and open up the back gate. And he said, that dog could get out, maybe get run over by a truck. Maybe go without food and starve. Maybe picked up by somebody that doesn't love it as much as I do. He said, it seems to me of the two freedoms, I'd rather be the dog on the inside of the fence. He said, you can be as big and as free as you want as long as you stay on the inside of the fence of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'll tell you something before I forget. Angela touched on it just for a minute last night. In my 12th year of sobriety, I went absolutely goony. In AA Comes of Age, Dr. Tebow says, regardless of our veteran status in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, at any time the disease of alcoholism can return, and normally it's in the form of halotosis. And in the 12th year of my sobriety, I made some bad financial decisions that jeopardized the security of the family. And I looked at business deals that I thought were good, and they weren't. And my sponsor and people around me that said, hey, Albert, I don't think that deal is that good. Hey, Albert, I think you're moving a little too fast. 
And up here, my alcoholic ego had taken over, and I said, if you knew how wonderful I am, you wouldn't talk to me like that. And I got hooked up with some personalities in the program that I wasn't compatible with. I'm not being critical. I just wasn't compatible with the personalities. And my sponsor and some people around me said, hey, I don't think you guys are compatible. And up here I said, if you knew how wonderful I am, you wouldn't talk to me like that. And in my 12th year of sobriety, I was going crazy and I didn't see it. And I was privileged and had reason to be up in Prince Albert, Canada. And there's a fellow up there called Cease, many of you know. And Cease has been a friend for a long time. And I said, Cease, I'm in my 12th year of sobriety and I'm going crazy. He said, talk to me a little bit about that, Albert. And I began to talk. And in a short time, Cease turned to me and he said, Albert, he said, it isn't that you're doing anything wrong. It's that you're not doing some things at all. I said, what the hell does that mean, Cease? He said, well, you remember when we first come to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, you're all beat up and torn up and you're real serious about the program? I said, yeah. He said, well, unfortunately in time, we're not as serious about the program and we start getting serious about the personality. He said, sometimes we get so busy picking up the pieces that we can drop the program. He began to say to me, he said, you know, Albert, I'll bet you don't read your 24-hour book every day anymore. And boy, he was right. I used to read that 24-hour book every day and squeeze the pages together to see how much sobriety I had. And C said to me, I'll bet you don't read pages 86 and 87 anymore. And he was right, man. Right on the middle of page 86, it says, On Awakening. And these are the things that you do. You know, the peculiar thing about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous in the big book is that it tells you and I to stand still in very subtle ways and get quiet. Argument and fault finding are to be avoided like the plague. Restraint of tongue and pen. We relax and take it easy. We don't struggle. The answers will come when our own house is in order. I'm an alcoholic that doesn't see doing nothing as a course of action. That's very difficult for me. But there's a phrase that says, nothing is sometimes a good thing to do and always a clever thing to say. That's never gotten me into trouble. <laughs> See, he said, I'll bet you don't pray like you used to, and I'll bet you don't meditate like you used to. He said, I'll bet you don't even support your home group the way you used to. And I want to tell you, thank God for the old-timer. Because when it says tonight, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path, that path is nothing more than a clear that the old-timers have made for us that if we get on that path, we can walk. And every once in a while, my ego takes me off the path, and I stumble, and I get snarled up in the brambles, and an old-timer like C says, get back on the path. And God, am I grateful for the old-timers. This old Bill Smith said to me, you'll come to this halfway house at 10.30 every morning. And I began to say funny things like, yes, sponsor. And he said, you're not going to travel anymore and you're not going to sell. I said, Bill, that's all I know. He said, I don't care. Whatever you've been doing, don't do that anymore. I said, what am I going to do? He said, you're going to sell used cars. I said, I never sold used cars. He said, you're going to start. And I said, yes, sponsor. In my first two months in the program, I sold used cars and painted used cars offices, and, and that you'll just have to take my word for it. That wasn't my style. <laughs> and Bill Smith said to me, you need a sponsor that you can relate to. I said, won't you be my sponsor? He said, I'll always be your sponsor, but you need a sponsor that you can relate to every single day. He said, there's a fellow that travels on the road for RCA and stays sober. I said, you're kidding me. 
travels on the road and stays sober. He said, yeah, his name is Hoss Ross. Did you ever notice who we turn our life over to in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous? On a Thursday night in Shreveport, Louisiana, at the Highland Group, I'm looking for a fellow by the name of Hoss Ross. And I said to a couple of the fellows, when Hoss shows up, let me know. And sure enough, man, it wasn't long. This skinny guy, about six foot four, weighed 135 pounds, dressed all in one color, came through the door. <laughs> they said, that's Hoss. And I went over to Hoss, and I said, Hoss, my name is Albert, and Bill Smith thinks you would be a good sponsor for me. I said, I understand you travel on the road for RCA and stay sober. He said, that's right, son. I said, would you be my sponsor? He said, I'd be honored. I said, you have one of them big books? I said, no, I don't, not of my own. He said, come with me. And I remember he bought me a big book, and he wrote in the front of it, To a Long Life in the Fellowship, Hoss Ross. He said, you a member anywhere? And I said, not really. He said, you are now. And he took me over, and we signed a card, and I became a member of the Highland Group. And I want to tell you, Hoss called me every single day. Just drove me crazy. He would call, he'd say, what are you doing, son? I'd say, nothing. He'd say, I'll be right over. God, he did that for about two weeks, and I told Sally, I said, I've made a terrible mistake. God, I can't shake this guy. He called one night. He said, what are you doing, son? I said, I'm busy tonight, Hoss. He said, good, I'll do it with you. On December the 13th of 1973, Sally and I drove to Dallas, Texas, and we didn't know a soul. And the car that I was driving was co-signed by my sponsor, and the job that I was going to had been arranged by my sponsor, and the money that I had in my pocket to buy groceries had been lent to me by my sponsor. And I will be forever grateful for my sponsors in the program. And sometimes I forget that the clothes that I have and the family that loves me and the job that I have and the car that I drive and the money in my pocket all came from the same source as my sobriety. And I don't share it as well sometimes as I should as my sponsors did with me. The youngest son was so resentful and angry with my sobriety and Sally and I that he couldn't stay with us for the first six months and the family took him in Shreveport because he used to keep a loaded shotgun for Sally and I when we'd come into his bedroom and he had so much hate and anger. And Sally and I began to work the program and do what you told us to do. And in step three, I began to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. And I didn't know what my will was in the beginning. It was my self-will and my selfishness and self-centeredness that I needed to turn over. And I really didn't know what my life was. And it's taken me a long time to figure out that I have a lot of lives to turn over to God. You know, I have a life in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have a life in my relationship. I have a life in my business. I have a life in my community. And I'm to practice those principles in all my affairs. And I'm an alcoholic that didn't know how to do that. And Sally and I got active in our home group called Alpha. And we did the things that you told us to do. And we'd been in the program about two years and one weekend we were out looking at houses. I've always said that's what alcoholics do that don't have any money. They look at houses. And Sally and I were just trying to fill up a weekend, and we were looking at this townhouse, and the lady said it's only $50,000, 5% down, 8 and three-quarter percent interest, 30-year loan. And Sally and I kind of laughed and giggled because we had a tough time trying to cash a $25 check. 
And I remember I called old Bill and I said, Bill, you'll never guess what Sally and I were doing this weekend. He said, what's that, Albert? I said, we were looking at houses. He said, tell me a little bit about that. And as we began to talk, Bill said to me, would you like to buy that house? And I said, of course. He said, well, you haven't forgotten about honesty yet, have you? And I said, no. He said, well, write a letter. And I said, to who? He said, the loan committee that that lady was talking about. Did you ever notice how we alcoholics are scared to death of losing something we don't own anyway? So Sally and I wrote this letter. I said, my name is, and I work for this company, and this is my every responsibility. I'm a, I'm a very active member of the Alpha Group Alcoholics Anonymous, Dallas, Texas. And Sally works for this group of doctors, and this is her area of responsibility, and this is what she makes. And she's a very active member of the Alpha Alanon Group, fa family group, Dallas, Texas. And on a Monday morning, we drove up in front of this little savings and loan place. And I remember that we held hands, we got very quiet in the front seat of the car, and we said out loud together, God, I offer myself to thee, to build with me, and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And there was a quietness and there was a strength in the front seat of the car that Sally and I haven't hadn't felt in a long time. And we kind of had this feeling and sensation whatever happened would be okay. And we went in and we sat across from this little loan officer and it got down to credit and money. And I said, we don't have any credit and we don't have any money. And if you want to see a strange look on a loan officer's face, just make that statement. But I said, we have this letter. What I really wanted to say is, my sponsor, no. And I said, here is a letter. And I said, this letter will tell you what Sally and I are trying to do in the community. You give it to the loan committee and you decide if we should be a part of. And I want to say it was four or five weeks maybe they called and said, come get your $50,000. And Sally and I became a part of the community. And we've both been privileged to sponsor a lot of people that can't get started and they can't get their credit and they can't get a boat and they can't get a house and they can't get a car. We say, hey, write a letter. And they say, that'll never work. I say, no, I know, but do it anyway. You know. And then we get those calls at night to say, you'll never guess what happened. And I say, no, what happened? You know, well, we got the car and we got the boat and got the house. And it was it was just unbelievable. Sally and I were chairing a meeting one night, and a man walked in, and you could tell he was in trouble. And out of courtesy, Sally said, is there anything anybody would like to talk about? And boy, his hand shot up in the air, and he said, yeah. He said, I'd like to talk about something. He said, I've got this crazy wife and four kids, and I just got out of this treatment center. And God, for about an hour, we tried to get a net over him. And At the end of the meeting, I went over and I said, my name's Albert. He said, my name's Jim. I said, what do you do, Jim? He said, I'm regional manager for Owens Corning Fiberglass. And I said, oh, God. <laughs> and I became his sponsor and his friend. And in a couple of years, Jim said to me, why don't you come back to work for Owens Corning Fiberglass? And I said, oh, Jim. I said, you don't know. Up there in my file, there's a little note that says, don't ever. Don't ever let this gorilla back. And Jim turned to me and he said, no, he said, we've changed our posture on that. He said, we have a very active employees assistance program. And of the 24,000 employees, over 2,000 of them are in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, why don't you write a letter? So I did. I wrote a letter, and I knew who to write, and I said, Dear guy, Jim and I are talking about this, and, you know, it would be more than I could pray for. And in just a few 
few weeks, they sent back and said, would you please send a resume? And I knew they had one. So they already had my resume. So I said, well, I'll just give them an AA resume. September 6th, driving while intoxicated. Jail, Shreveport Jail. Sold used cars, two months. I just, I just sent it back up to Toledo. And within a short period of time, they called and said, would you come up for interviews? And I said, sure. And the very first day, I had to go through five interviews that Monday. And I remember the very first man was kind of the corporate interviewer. And we sat down across from each other, and he, he pulled out this paper, and he kind of looked at me, and he said, you know, I really can't ask you all these questions, but he said, I've been dying to meet you. As long as I've been with this company, I've never seen a resume where a guy starts out in jail. <laughs> and I went through the interviews, and the last one was uh, with a fellow that had been my branch manager in Kansas City some 20 years prior. And the interview went like this. He said, how's Sally and the kids? I said, terrific. I said, how's Marion and your kids? He said, super. Are you ready to come back? And I said, sure. And they bridged some 20 years, and I went back to work for Owens Corning Fiberglass. And I'd been with them about a year, and I was playing racquetball one night, and I had a heart attack. And I, I didn't know that I had it. I had a heart attack with no pain. I just kind of had a pull in my back, and I thought I'd kind of strained a muscle playing racquetball. And the second day I went to work, and that evening Sally and I went out for dinner, and the, the pain began to get a little more progressive, and, and uh, I told Sally, you better take me to the emergency ward. And So we went to the hospital, and the guy said, boy, you're going to feel better with these hoses up your nose and this IV in your arm and this nitro under your tongue. He said, you've had a heart attack and shut down the whole right coronary area. And they took me there up to intensive care, and if you've ever been to intensive heart care units, they're very strict and very rigid, and there's little plaques on the wall that say family only, two people only, two-minute limit only. And Sally and one of the sons had just been there visiting, and I'm all wired for sound, and I'm going in and out of the oxygen. And they had just left, and as I came to, I looked at the end of the bed, and this beautiful black guy that I sponsored was standing at the end of my bed. And I said to Bob, I said, Bob, how the hell did you get in here? He said, I told him I was family. <laughs> I said, what else did you tell him? He said, I told him you were my father. <laughs> we, we really are family. I mean, we're wired funny. I had a second heart attack with no pain in a cardiovascular class, and uh, the cardiologist said, you have a real problem. You can't monitor your disease. And I said, yeah, that's happened to me once before. And, so I had an angiogram, and they said, uh, you need to have a triple bypass right away. And, I, you know, alcoholics are funny. Right to the end, I remember saying to the surgeon, what happens if I don't have the triple bypass? He said, you'll die. I said, oh, okay. You know, you, you just have to be sure. And uh, I'll tell you this. I don't advocate open-heart surgery for an in-depth third step, but I'll tell you this. The night before open-heart surgery, you will do an in-depth third step. About five or six years ago, the daughter was having problems in her relationship, and uh, she called and said, could I bring the grandson and come to Texas? And I said, sure, Roxy, when are you coming? And she told me the weekend, I said, you may want to pick another weekend because mom's busy at a woman-to-woman -woman conference up in Oklahoma. And she said, no, Dad, I think I'd like to come down and be with you. And I'm a father that's plagued with a tremendous amount of guilt where his children are concerned. I mean, I, I'm a very tangible person, and my amends to my children sometimes go like this. God, I'm so sorry for what I did, and God willing, it'll never happen again, and would you like a Seiko watch? <laughs> I can't tell you why I do that, but that's, you know, I, I buy four Seiko watches at a time and so on. And 
And when Roxy and I go shopping, she's very careful not to point because she knows that I'll make an attempt to get it for her. And we were at this very fussy mall, and, and we were kind of shopping, and I said to Roxy, I said, I see in this morning's paper that George Shearing and Mel Torme are playing down at the Fairmont. How would you like to have a night out on the town with your dad? And she said, I just love that. And we made arrangements for a sitter, and I remember Roxy and I got all fancied up, and we went down to this very fussy hotel, and the maitre d' took us to our table, and the music began to play, and I said to Roxy, how would you like to dance? And she said, I would just love that. And I kind of remember holding my girl as the music's playing, and all of a sudden I heard, you're just the greatest dad in all the world. You're the most wonderful person that I love, that I know. I love you so much. You are so special. And all the things that I have ever wanted to hear from my daughter, I heard that night. And the peculiar thing about it is I did not come to Alcoholics Anonymous to be a good father or to be a good husband or to be a good anything. I came here to get the heat off and the pain out. And you gave me a set of principles that overpowered my personality and made me a functioning human being to my family and to my friends and to my community, and I will be forever grateful. The oldest son that got into the drugs and the relationships that we didn't understand continued to have problems in society. You know, if you cripple the kids with the illness of alcoholism in the home, truly we shouldn't be too startled when they limp in society. And it's a peculiar thing. I don't recognize that sometime. And Chuck continued to, to get in and out of social problems. And they called one time from Austin, and he was in jail on two counts of criminal mischief. And the bail had been set, and the attorney's fees was $2,000. And I remember writing the check for $2,000 to send to the attorney. And as I'm writing the check, I know I'm doing the wrong thing, and I know I'm crippling my son. But somewhere in there, the guilt let me write that check. And I sent it down, and it wasn't long thereafter, another month or so, they called, and Chuck was back in jail again on a charge of criminal harassment. And the bail had gone up, and the attorney's fees had gone up. And, and I remember as I was talking to Chuck somehow, and I don't know how it happened, I said, Chuck, I love you like a rainbow, but I'm not going to play anymore. And I don't know how you got in, and I don't know how you're going to get out, but I'm done. And I remember I put the phone down. I didn't slam it. I, I just, I've heard the Al-Anons talk about frozen emotions, and that's, that's where I was. I couldn't think of how to talk, and my heart was broken. And, and I just stood there for a while, and I remember I called an Al-Anon, and, and I said, I just said no to my son for the first time in 12 years, and my heart is broken. And she said, of course it is. You're a father, but you've got to work the steps. And damn, I got mad. I said, hey, I know the steps. And she said, yeah, but you ain't working them. And I said, well, for God's sakes, help me. And she said, well, say out loud, you're powerless over your son, and he makes your life unmanageable. And I remember standing in the middle of the room, and I've got the phone like this, and I'm saying, I'm powerless over Chuck, and he makes my life unmanageable. God, I'm powerless over my son, and he makes my life unmanageable. And that's the way that was. I had intellectualized that a hundred times and never taken it with my heart. And she said, a power greater than yourself is going to restore him to sanity. God, if I, if I do that, I can be restored to sanity and he can be restored to sanity. And you're going to turn his will and his life over to the care of God as you understand him. If I turn Chuck's will over and I turn my will over, I don't have that problem anymore. And then she said to me, write down a couple of things that make you feel guilty about your son. And boy, I didn't even hesitate. I wrote down, made him do things that he didn't want to do when he was small. 
I'm a frustrated jock, and I wanted him to be a competitor. And when the sun was shining, my foot was in the middle of his back. And by God, you will play, and it's a competitive world. And one of these days out there, you'll thank me for it. I mean, God had gifted him as an artist and a poet and a journalist. I used to get him by the shoulders, and I'd shove him up against the wall, and I'd get his eyeballs about that big around, and I'd say, damn you. If you just get your hair cut, just get to school on time, just pick up your room, do the things that I tell you to do, you can be just like me. God, I remember I had him up there one time, and I was just shoving him, and he just looked me straight in the eye, and he very quietly looked me in the eye, and he said, you're insane. And I said, how dare you talk to me? By God, I put the clothes on your back and the food on the table and the roof over your head. If it wasn't for me, you wouldn't have what you have. And I didn't know how true that was. And I left him in jail that day. And kind of a year went by, and I went down to Austin to see him. And another year went by, and he came up to Dallas to see me. And we played a little golf, and we gave each other the dignity to be a human being. And a couple of Father's Days ago, I got a big card on Father's Day. And on the front of it was a monkey all dressed up like Humphrey Bogart, the trench coat, the tilted hat, and the cigarette. As you opened it up, the caption on the inside said, Here's looking at you, Dad. And then down below it had P.S. I just want to tell you how proud I am of what you've done with your life. You've certainly given me something to live up to. And he's the first son to call on birthdays and holidays and can I come home, or would you like to come down, or can I be with you? And the relationship that I have with that son is more than I would have prayed for. The middle son, the quiet one, just calls now to say, Hey, I love you, Pop. You need anything? And the son that kept the loaded shotgun for us a couple years ago needed to talk. And we were having lunch, and John said to me, He said, Dad, sometimes I find myself drinking with people that I don't like to drink with. Did that ever happen to you? And I said, oh, once or twice, you know. And he said, Dad, sometimes I find myself drinking in places that I don't want to be. Did that ever happen to you? And I said, sure. And he said, Dad, sometimes I start out the night with two or three hundred dollars, and in the morning I've only got twenty, thirty, or forty, and I'm not sure where all the money went. Did that ever happen to you? And I said, of course. And he said, what do you think? And I said, about what? I've never seen you drunk. Let me do this. I want to do for you what your mom's dad did for me. I'm going to give you the names of two people in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know them both. I'm going to give you their home phone and their business phone. And if the pain or the confusion in your life gets so bad that you can't handle it, you talk to them. They've got a way out. And the reason that I'm doing that, John, is that I'm your father and I'm afraid I'll kill you. Where it says, working with others in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, somehow I can look directly at your kids and I can see untreated alcoholism. And unfortunately, when I look at my kids, I see social misbehavior. I don't know why that is. I cannot look at my kids with full acceptance without a certain amount of expectations. But I want to tell you one thing. Sally and I have come to sleep very good at night in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon, knowing one thing for certain. When the time is right, you will save our kids, and we'll save yours. It's nice to have a love affair going with you, lady, after 41 years.
I didn't know how to function for the well-being of another person. I didn't know how it was to love another person. I had to come to Alcoholics Anonymous to find out that having a good relationship is not finding the right person, it's being the right person. My having a good love affair with my wife doesn't have anything to do with my wife. It has any, everything to do with my behavior. When my behavior is good, my love affair is good. When my behavior is funny, my love affair is funny. Had to come to the program to find out that love is not looking at each other, it's looking in the same direction. And although we've been married for 41 years, I will tell you we're still learning on a daily basis how to touch and feel and not be afraid of each other. One of the problems that we had when we first got here was we didn't know how to communicate. And I think there's a big difference between building and reconstructing. I think a lot of us come in here and we build from that point on. But Sally and I had to go back and reconstruct a lot of things and clean out old wounds. And we didn't know how to talk to each other because we were dirty fighters. And on our way to Louisiana one time, Sally said to me, would you like to have a meeting? And I said, sure. And she said, my name is Sally and I'm a very grateful Al-Anon. And I, I can't remember what we talked about that day. It was probably money, sex, or kids. That's about 99% of what we talk about. But I remember that she talked and I listened. And when she was through, I said, my name is Albert and I'm an alcoholic. And, and I talked. And she listened. And then she talked. And then I interrupted. And she reminded me we were in a meeting. And then... <laughs> But we've been able to work out everything within the principles and the framework of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to tell you that this has been a very great privilege and a very great honor for me to have my little 83-year-old mom in the front row and, and my pretty wife. And I want to tell you all that I need you more tonight than I did the first night I came to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't think AA is much of a gamble when you don't have anything to lose. But as I stand here tonight, with your love, and the love of my family, and the love of my children, and the love of my friends, I owe you a great deal. And I will tell you what my old Louisiana man told me when I first came to the program. Don't drink, read the big book, and go to meetings. I love you all. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.